uh, because like the uh, it's got a nice mouth feel to also along with um bianca bosker cork dork like it sounds like <laughs> it's like a good the hard k sound it's yeah. right there in comedy you know yeah. it's, it's, um, important. i didn't think about that but i like that there's the poetry it's yeah. great <laughs> i know i don't know that was good though i liked it i liked it so many so many so many damn books but welcome to So Many Damn Books. I am Christopher. I'm Drew. And today we have Bianca Bosker in the damn library with us. Thanks so much for joining us, Bianca. Thanks for having me. It is so delightfully cozy in here. <laughs> That's exactly what I want to hear. Yeah. Since it is my home. <laughs> uh, I've tried to make it cozy. I'm glad it worked. Do you want to introduce Bianca a little better, Drew? Oh, sure. Um, you are you're an award-winning journalist. You were the executive tech editor at... Now Huff Post, uh-huh. I guess, um, and you're the author of Original Copies: Architectural Mimicry in Contemporary China. Mm. Yeah. Oh well. And, <laughs> and and then of course. And then of course, Cork Dork. Yeah. Subtitle: A Wine Fueled Adventure Among the Obsessive Sommeliers, Big Bottle Hunters, and Rogue Scientists Who Taught Me to Live for Taste. Which we are going to have to talk about that title yeah. in a second. Yeah. Absolutely. But before we get there, I. Uh, Want to tell you living for taste? Yeah, I want to tell you about this drink that I made. Um, it's delicious. I have to say that after reading your book, this is probably the most nervous I've been about making a cocktail for an author um, because it had to be very good. I felt job. like. Um, and so I, I decided to try something new. I've never, um, cold infused anything before, which is just a fancy phrase for putting something in the fridge while you infuse it. <laughs> Literally, we did find this out earlier. Uh, cold infused just means you essentially made tea using gin yeah. and stuck it stuck in the fridge for two hours. Exactly. Uh, so this is a T2 brand of tea called Tropicool that I put inside a gin, um, and put in the fridge for two hours. And then, um, of course, strained that out and used, mixed that, about an ounce of that with about an ounce of Cochi Americano and um, uh, lime juice and grapefruit juice and then honey orange bitters on top. Mm. And so that's the dork is is what I'm calling it because it makes me sound like a dork when I'm explaining it. Um, but and, yeah, and I have to say, you can't see it, but I think the color actually pairs beautifully with Cork Dork's cover. Yeah, it does so look you nice. are—it was really a multi-sensory tasting experience. Well, I had to make sure to use wine. Cochi Americano is a fortified mm. wine, so I had to use wine somewhere. Good, in it. nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I'm glad you like it, and uh, that's the drink. It's delicious. Yeah. Let's talk about your. Book? Oh no, we're gonna talk about what you buy, you buy first. I'm really excited to talk about <laughs> Let's talk about what you we buy. We gotta do the bits. I know yeah. the things that we made up. Drew, why don't you start us off with what you bought? Uh, sure. So, the last couple of weekends have been book-related things. Oh yeah. Um, 
Independent Bookstore Day was just a couple weekends mm. ago. Yeah, I got to celebrate in Austin. It was awesome. Ooh, oh, cool. cool. With wine, obviously. <laughs> um, I stopped by the latest addition to the Brooklyn New Book Stable. Books are magic. Uh-huh. Uh, and I picked up The Sandemeyer Reaction by Michael Shabin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that's a, a short story, like deleted scene from Moonglow, basically. It, and that's not even your term. Like that's written on the top of it. It's like, this is a deleted scene. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's very clear. He's like, in the introduction, he's like, I was reading through the drafts. I really loved this scene and I read this and I had that thought of like, I got to cut this out of the book, but it's so good. So here it is. <sighs> um, but then the weekend before that was uh, St. George's Day or St. Jordy Day. And a year and a half ago, my girlfriend and I had both read Helen Oyeyemi's short story collection. What is not yours is not yours. And there's a story in there about St. Jordy Day and how on St. Jordy Day in Spain and Portugal, uh, couples give each other a rose and a book mm. and we were like this sounds awesome screw valentine's day we're gonna do this i like that wait wait what does it come from though and i haven't done all of my research partially because i love like the way that oh sets it up in the short story it is, could just be her thing i know right <laughs> yeah. you know everything um, you want to know about it yeah <laughs> but so i uh danny gave me the autobiography of red oh. and carson which i haven't read I'm nice yeah. that's cool how about you me yes you Okay, oh, I can go. I actually didn't buy this. I was walking to um, Green Lights New Outpost, right uh, three blocks from me, um, which is just Green Light PLG. They've already had to like be putting things in titles, like "Don't go to the other shop." Um, <laughs> should really come up with a different name, maybe. Whatever. It's a great little store. But on my way there to Independent Bookstore Day, I um I found a book on the side of the street. Um, Kayla Ray Whitaker's The Animators. And when I was going through it, it was sort of incredible. It was all filled with these post-it notes. That's basically the last person who read this annotations. Um, And she seems to be really into all of it. I mean, there's, and at the front of the thing, it says, check inside for my notes. Which is so cool. Yeah, that's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, that's lovely. Uh, Did I just see one that said, Oi, come on, as yep. a note? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very, very excited about finding that um, walking around Brooklyn. Yeah. Nice. This is great. This is like almost like performance art. These post-it notes, there's like pictures and sketches and emojis. Well, the, great. the, the book is about... Um, Two animators in like the heyday of Nickelodeon type of time, I guess. Oh, and uh, the person a golden who, era. who annotated it is also into animation, so they're like, "Oh, well, I knew know something more about this." Yeah, which is cool. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, Bianca, what did you? I just picked up and immediately finished. The rules do not apply. So oh. Ariel. Oh. Levy? Levy? Yeah. Levy? Okay. I don't know. L-E-V-Y. Someone else can probably correct me on Twitter after they listen <laughs> to this. Um, and it was incredible. I couldn't put it down. Um, I actually was I finished the Joan Didion that we are going to be discussing um, on the my ride over here because I, was so, I just couldn't put down the rules to not apply. Wow. And it has been really... I mean, let's just go there. Like, you know, as someone who is 
30 and like married but like is still like really deferring having children like not something that has really crossed my mind like we have a plant that we can barely keep alive um (laughs) it has like put me in this really weird pregnancy mindset in a way that I was not anticipating and is not entirely welcome but is it a testament (laughs) to how powerful the book is Mm. um and it's one that I, I I really want my husband to read it not because like I want like I think Whatever, but I think I just think I like need to talk to someone about it, as you can tell, because I'm like getting getting personal really quickly. But um, but yeah, it was it was it's a small book, but it has a big impact. Mm. Cool. Wow. I I keep seeing it. The yeah, cover is it's a very, very striking cover. Yeah. Yeah, it's got sort of like a '70s feel to it too. Yeah. Like it's gotten sort of a, a vintage look. Yeah. Okay, so now yeah, let's now let's talk about let us let us dive into the let's barrels. Let's talk about cork dork um, with I, dorks in hand. We have discussed <laughs> cork dork. One of the one of my first things that I was thinking while I was reading this is um, when in the course of writing it did you feel like you were writing a book? I mean, like, or when 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 in the course of living this part of your life where you're like, okay, I'm going to write a book about this. So I think I have that very particular disease that infects a lot of journalists where I can't do something without thinking that it will, you know, will this become a story? Mm -hmm. Um, I have an old colleague of mine who I worked with at HuffPost who's really into bike racing. Like he would spend hours and hours and hours training and going out on the weekends, these races. And I remember talking to him and I was like, so are you like, writing a book about it? And he was like, no. Was like, are you writing a blog about it? And he was like, no. And I was like, so why are you doing it? <laughs> um, and I realized in that moment, A, I need a hobby. And B, um, that's just kind of how my mind works. I mean, so I, it was something that, um, you know, was, was definitely in my mind. Um, but it was also a journey that I would have gone on Regardless, I mean, as I write about in the book, like I do think that for me, you know, if you haven't read the book, basically it's the story of I had spent five years at the Huffington Post as the executive tech editor there. And the last thing in the world I expected to do was write a book about wine. But due to a variety of different kind of just unexpected coincidences, I encountered this world of cork dorks, these hyper obsessive sommeliers, wine lovers, you know, like rocks to train their palates go to these crazy Westminster dog show with booze competitions. And basically, I was like, well, what is the big deal about wine? Why do people spend all this time and money on something that turns into very expensive pee? Mm-hmm. And, you know, as someone who's spending her life at a screen, what would it be like to live for these physical senses of taste and smell? And so I decided, you know, I wouldn't just write about this world of cork dorks. I wanted to see if I be- could become one of them. So the book is about the story of me really quitting my job, starting over. It's the lowest of the low in the wine world as a cellarette and training to become a sommelier. And, you know, I think there are times in life where things just find you and they surface something that you've buried very deep inside. And I had a sort of wine Pandora's box that opened up and there was just no going back. Wow. Yeah. That's a, (laughs) that's a, I mean, I read the book and I'm like, I want to read that book. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it, was, it was such an exciting book to read because um, it's, it's exciting to read someone get into their, get into their thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and explain why they were getting into it so, um, 
so arrestingly. I don't know about you, but I don't know anything about wine. I enjoy a couple varietals. I know a couple things I like about it, but I'm not, I haven't taken any sort of dive. I feel like if I, if I drink wine for a little while, then I'm like, all right, I can start to recognize things. And then if I take a break, because I do not drink wine terribly frequently, I come back and I'm like, uh, yeah, (laughs) wine is red wine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But so I was curious if you were writing this, it's to me as a neophyte, I was very, I felt like very brought along, but were you also thinking about like, there's this other character in the book, um, Morgan, um, who is so crazy about wine. Were you thinking about like the, his stripe picking up the book as well? Oh, for sure. Well, I think so to provide some context for people who haven't read it, basically, so I quit my job with these grand aspirations that I'm going to, you know, start working at a Michelin two-star restaurant and then work my way up to Michelin three-star restaurant from there. <laughs> and that was before I knew that sommeliers and cork dorks have a name for people like me as I was then, or like, you know, the, sort of the amateurs, right? You are a civilian. Mm. And that kind of tells you everything you need to know about the very stringent divisions between you know those who work the floor and those who sit on the floor mm-hmm. <laughs> um and so i um really had to earn my spot and so part of it was starting over and working as a seller at but then i really also needed a wine mentor because i was honing my palate i set out to take the court of master sommelier certified sommelier exam and i needed you know, people that were insiders to show me what to do. I mean, how do you go from, I mean, I was like you, right? Where I could stick my nose into a glass and say this, you know, on a really good day, this smells like wine (laughs) to being able to stick your nose into a glass of wine as they could and pick up the stories and the tastes and smells. And so Morgan was sort of my wine, you know, muse, mentor, fairy godmother, you name it. And this guy is crazy about wine um and his i mean i would tell you as a tech editor i feel like i had met every nerd under the sun and he was like defined nerdum in a totally different spectrum i hadn't even encountered it was like discovering a new nerd solar system (laughs) and he but it had come around to something approaching like cool i mean he was just so passionate but i will say that the the book is um i was very intentional yeah wanting it to be something that would appeal to people who were like me at the beginning, who were civilians, sort of wondered why would I pay more than, you know, a hardcover book for a bottle of wine. And also people who are ardent collectors, um, you know, people that have spent fortunes and trust funds on on bottles of wine. And and I will say that I've, I have friends on both ends who have both said that they really discovered something new in it. And I, and I even cool. think that sommeliers will find something new because it's, Yes, it's behind the scenes in the industry, but of course it's also the history, it's the science, mm-hmm. all these things. Yeah. I really like the um this idea of like like you said, the disease of finding something and then just like latching onto it. And I'm I'm curious if that has trickled out of this, but like have you found your new thing that you're like, now I wanna know everything about this? <laughs> I'm definitely looking for it. Like, will it be a different aspect of wine? It'll be something else. Um, I think it's... What was interesting about the process of writing a book, so Cork Torque is 
way more first person than anything I've written before. I think it's also funnier than anything I've written before. <laughs> um, and my husband spent a lot of times reading early drafts and being like, that's not funny. So what you are finding <laughs> is like um, the distillation of what is sort of past muster. Um, but in the process of writing this book that is so first person and is sort of memoiristic, I sort of went through a sort of self-analysis in a way that I hadn't before because you have to explain to a reader why you did something as insane as quitting your full-time job with healthcare to be unemployed <laughs> and day drink, you know, 10 a.m. on Tuesday mornings, yeah. right? And what I came to realize is I've always been obsessed with obsession. When I look back at the stories I would write at HuffPost or even before or after, you know, like I've never been the person who would stand in line, you know, with screaming girls to meet some heartthrob, but I have written about the people that do that. Like, mm. I've never been someone who, you know, gets just totally starstruck and Looney Tunes, except I think over writers that I love. But, you know, and and yet, like, I write about the people who, you know, um, follow televangelists around the country or um, people who date even marry characters in video games. Mm. And so I think that there is a sort of uh, antecedent to, to this world of cork dorks drawing me in, but what's next? I don't know. Do you have ideas? Um, how, I mean, how is your life? It seems like your life would really change after a book like this comes out because you are, um, you're sort of saying like, putting your stake in the ground of like wine, which is like a huge world. And, and uh, you even have this uh, a little line of like, this is my email address if you want to open something really nice with me. Has that happened yet? I mean, has yeah. your life changed? Yeah, it's um, it's funny. So the book came out um, at this point just about a month ago, and it feels like it's been a lifetime. Hmm. Um, it's just been so... It's been wonderful and it's been challenging in its own way. Um, I did just get my first real like hate message on Instagram last night. Um, this guy was like, you're an idiot, like blah, blah, blah. And then he misspelled idiot. And I was like, well, I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also, I mean, not in an obnoxious way. I was kind of like, well, like maybe when you've got like a hater, you've made it, you know, mm -hmm, yeah. um, especially like an anonymous when like someone that you've never met, like hates you. <laughs> right. Um, and um, I will say that the, you know, the book hit the bestseller list, which was awesome. And, and for various reasons that, you know, you understand being in the literary world is something that was straight to paperback, nonfiction, a debut author was like, just this awesome kind of miracle. And, um, but I will say that, yeah, so I, I, at the end of the book, I do include my email address. And I've, one of the most gratifying parts of the last few weeks has been hearing from readers, some of whom have been have invited me to open up great wines from their cellar, some of whom who've written to say that like they listened to me reading the audiobook while breastfeeding their baby and now their newborn <laughs> like perks up whenever she hears my voice, which is hilarious. But I will say that look, as someone who, you know, my my best friends are books. Like I was an only child. I mean I am an only child as you know, and um <laughs> I really grew up around books and they changed my life in a way that I'm not sure that many other things really have. And so to hear from other people who have felt moved by something I've written is the most gratifying feeling I can describe. It's just mm. amazing. I'm curious to know, uh, as, as you talk about loving books, has your appreciation for 
books and for like for everything else for music for movies change as as you went through this because as i was reading this and you talk about these ways that you start to experience things differently and the idea of the subjective good versus the objective good and i'm curious to know if your tastes or your perceptions of non-food or drink related things have changed because of what you went through right because it feels like it felt like there was a a bit of a a one of the journeys that you take is the idea of just like prizing your subjectivity like Mm. and making that like you're like you know subjectivity isn't isn't actually a as a isn't a crutch it's like your your trophy of like these are all the things that i've learned and i bring to the table no matter what yeah i think that's a really i hadn't thought of it in that way exactly but i think that's a really nice read of it i mean i think that um it definitely has changed the way that i approach books but also music and art and i will say it's for me getting in touch with my sense of taste gave me confidence in my taste in all things and what i mean by that is that you know i do think that a lot of us settle for what i would describe as secondhand sensing right something tastes good or is delicious because it's expensive or it comes from some really cool place with Edison bulbs or whatever. <laughs> and I think one of the things you learn with in the course of learning to blind taste, which is, you know, what partially what I learned in the course of the research for Cork Dork is that you have to filter out all that noise, all the things that are designed to play to your cognitive biases and be able to stay really true to your own felt experience of something. Um, and I learn to do that in a glass of wine but it's a mindset that I aspire to and embrace again when I'm listening to a piece of music and I'm reading a poem if I'm looking at a piece of art um because I think that it's I don't know I, I just I think that there's um a lot of us don't really it's sort of easier just to outsource the thinking to the price tag or the brand or the context or whatever but yeah. to kind of give yourself that extra task of saying no no what am I feeling and this is different from mindfulness um, and I don't exactly write about in this book but it is this, this mindset that I would describe as sensefulness that I've come to which is this idea mm. that's by tuning into your senses that you learn to make sense of the world and mindfulness to me is more about looking inward whereas sensefulness or you know this idea of wine that I learned was more about looking outward and it's sort of like how do you stay really true in reacting to what you're experiencing. Mm. I, I texted Drew and I was like, this book makes me feel a little bit of Eat the Rich, um, where it's just mm-hmm. like, like there's these people dropping, you know, however much money on a bottle of wine. Yeah. Um, but also, like, I think it's great that people can do that too. So I, I don't have the, the complete mindset that, I don't know, that, some sort of old-fashioned communist idea of like oh that shouldn't be <laughs> um but well i think that you know in that vein i think that there's it's hard right in some ways like i think it's so easy i think about this a lot when i'm reading other writers as well like i think there's some writers some of the most talented writers are people that are able to take people that we would otherwise maybe not like and just if not make us like them, not make us overtly dislike them, but also just understand them. And I think that that is, now that you mention it, perhaps what I was trying to do in some ways is to sort of, obviously there's a point of view, but you know, in writing about these like, you know, mega rich who's go to this crazy 
elite wine orgy that I got my way into, right? I mean, it's it's a very, uh, it's hard to come out of that feeling neutral, but, you know, it is excessive. It is just, you know, as one just somebody described it, thousands of pounds of foie gras shoveled in your face, essentially. <laughs> but, um, like, I think more interestingly, more interesting than just letting a reader pass judgment is to help them understand the motivations, the reasons, the mindset of sort of other people. Yeah. That totally makes sense to me. Let's I, I like too that in in that chapter, which is like a tour de force chapter, both Christopher and I texted each other about it after we read that chapter. Um, but the fact that you show up with a wine that for you felt expensive and but that you were realizing it was like, expensive yeah, <laughs> that like the the people who are showing up are going to be like Argh. right but the idea that it in a way everybody's there for the story and for the idea that like this wine is special to you and it is expensive to you and so that makes it special right. yes yes um uh, I, I love that chapter, um, partially because there's... It's called The Orgy. For yeah, it is called The Orgy. <laughs> and it's about this thing, uh, La Palais, I believe, is, yeah. is the, the party. And it's it's a $1,500 ticket to go to this uh, dinner. Which is BYOB. And, and the BYOB is like, <laughs> bring a bottle that you consider a treasure from your cellar, which I, I kind of... I, I was I was loving it. Um, yeah, I loved the idea of it. I loved that also the space wasn't completely like beautiful in oh, a way. No. Yeah, it's essentially the place where you could, they have like wedding, like tr- favor trade shows. I mean, it's <laughs> like I've been to tech trade shows there. Like this is not a beautiful place. Right. Uh, and it, but there's this thing that you keep doing of where you finish anything with like a la 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 which um i was curious is that is that just like drunkenness or is that also maybe like a seinfeld like yada 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 like is there stuff that didn't make it to the page that was playing on so basically okay just close your eyes imagine right you're in this dark room there's no windows people have paid fifteen hundred dollars to be there fought their way for the privilege of paying fifteen hundred dollars because thing sells out immediately you have to know someone who knows someone and millions of dollars of wine show up and um you've got this all these i mean look as someone that had breasts and was like under 45 i was definitely in the vast minority of people there right <laughs> and so um you're in this room and they have on the stage these uh, huge French singers with big stomachs and big white mustaches, and they're singing what is essentially a burgundy drinking song. And I'm not going to do it just with something like la 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 la. And so the <laughs> la la las were like the reference of like oh. that singing. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you yeah. go. Yeah. You were having a few too many dorks when you read that one. <laughs> <laughs> Reading this book with a drink in hand uh, was definitely a cool experience because every time you talked about something, no matter what it was that I was drinking, whether it was just juice or scotch or a beer or wine, I was paying attention to it mm. more. And I was started, I was like, <sighs> yeah, um, <laughs> the real scotchy scent. <laughs> Last night, I like I I finished this book. Uh, like a couple weeks ago, but I was still I was sitting there with this, and my girlfriend was like, "Why do you keep smelling it in the book?" She says, "You can't smell," and I was like, "But I want to know." <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if your nose gets tired as you're smelling, it, first of all, you just smell something else. Smell your arm. Smell like the person sitting next to you. Um, but you know, I think also it's it is funny the way. So since doing this, 
and really going through this exercise of learning to pardon the mixed metaphor, but listen to these forgotten senses of taste and smell. You know, even though the book is out, I still do these things, right? I still, you know, I, I mean, I really, like, I still don't wear perfume. I still don't, you know, wear, use scented laundry detergent. Uh, I still don't really eat or drink things above a lukewarm temperature. And I still smell things compulsively. Mm. And I think that oftentimes, in an interesting way, it's perceived as rude, which is so mm. unfortunate. So, like, huh. I remember, like, I'll go out and say I'm, like, eating sushi, and it's, like, I have it, like, I'll, like, smell it before I eat it, and I feel like some, you know, that seems rude that I think it's not fresh or something, which also speaks to an idea in the book, which is really that taste and smell are these really neglected base senses, right? Plato and Aristotle decided they didn't matter, and we've really believed that ever since. And... um you know, smelling food when you eat it in a way that shouldn't be because it adds that extra beat of pleasure and richness to it. And yet I've done it at dinner parties and I feel like it's people are not happy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was it's funny. I was looking up. um, I I wanted to check out this briefcase of smells that you bring up a couple of times like your and um, that kit or or at least the one that you mentioned a few times in the book is sold out and back ordered from really? like on. And I wonder if like, this is, this is the cork dork effect. Wow. I love the idea of a cork dork effect. Um, <laughs> it's it maybe, I mean, I've, I've actually had a few people write to me and say that they've bought it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. I will also say that, um, I also write about a woman named Ann Noble, who's a professor emeritus at the university of California, Davis. And she's in ways that, most people don't really realize really the inventor of the modern day tasting note. She's a sensory scientist um, who started what's called the kindergarten of the nose, which is this mandatory course for aspiring winemakers at UC Davis, sort of the, it's really the Harvard of enology. And um, she has this method that she's really created to teach people how to, which we've never really, none of us really ever do, pay attention to smell, put words on smells. Again, listen to your nose. And she has something called the wine aroma wheel, which is really the, someone has referred to it as the 10 commandments of wine, where it's like, these were the original tasting notes for wine. And I hear from her a lot that people have written to her to order it from her and buy mm-hmm. it from her, huh. which again is awesome. That means that like, you know, what is better than being able to Take something from a book and use it and have it change your everyday life or, you know, even something you do in your life beyond it. That's great. I mean, going back to, the, you know, Ariel Levy, Levy's book. Um, God, I feel in a rush to get pregnant after reading that book. <laughs> like, like talk about, you know, cause it's all about sort of the risks of really like having a kid when you're older and like that. What power, right? That is awesome. And mm. so to even if I can help someone you know, decide that they're going to take that extra moment, smell that food or order that kid or whatever it is, that makes me just really delighted. Why don't we switch gear? As much as I could talk to you about your book for a thousand hours, we also, um, we also read <laughs> something else for this show. Um, yeah, you, you brought us a book. Um, I did, uh, mostly so that um, the words Bianca Bosker and Joan Didion could appear in some combination. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so the book that I suggested that we are um, that we all read is Joan Didion's new South and West subtitle from a notebook. Which is so important. Yes. Um, yeah. 
So I'd never read any Joan Didion at all before. <gasps> I know. <laughs> I see so it on your bookshelf. I decided I couldn't um, start with her notebook. Okay. So I jumped in and read uh, White Album and Slouching Towards Bethlehem back great, to back. Great, great, Um And I... Sorry, that, I, I shouldn't have said that. That's not judgmental because you know what? I shouldn't have said that. I was just, I was sorry that you've gone so many years on the planet without reading it. But to be honest, there's so many books that I should have read that I kind of don't admit to not having read. And so for you to say that you jumped it right in, kudos to you. It doesn't matter how long it took it. That's awesome that you read it. <laughs> uh, Joan Didion, I mean, I, she's always been on my radar, especially since I'm from California and she writes so beautifully about California. Um, but I just missed for some reason, it just never was the next thing to read. And it was always like, oh, I want to read that next. And then it yeah. get pushed down the line. Um, but she's got an essay in White Album where she even talks about keeping a notebook and sh- how she hopes that no one would ever read her notebook because <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Uh. And they're all like half-formed ideas. And, you know, she wasn't really lying at, in this. I don't know what your guys' um, experience was, but it was a, it was beautiful to be in her mind again and to be in her sentences um, but I, I felt like in a modern context it, with all the white space and everything, I started to think about Maggie Nelson a lot and, um, it felt like Maggie Nelson ish, like, uh, like an exploration of that subject without actually, um, having the like further point, which she admits to not having, she knows that she knows it with, and you know, as you're starting it, that she never found the thing that she wanted to write about. She never found the point that she was looking mm. for. Yeah. Well, I will say that I'm curious around the term of notebooks. Like, what, 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 what does she mean exactly when she says notebooks? Right? Because these are these are still very distilled thoughts. And I, you know, I know that like when I'm writing and I'm, you know, also writing nonfiction and reporting, like my notebooks are a mess. Right? Mm-hmm. They're like quotes and there's question marks and there's just sort of scribbles of different things that I'm picking up but they're not beautifully written the way (laughs) that this notebook is really beautifully written um but I agree I think what is interesting is even though it didn't become a full piece I still came away with a really clear idea of what she was trying to tell us or what she had perceived of this experience Mm -hmm. even though she didn't come quite out with a fully fledged hypothesis, I still felt like a really rich sense of where she was, this moment in time, what was happening. Yeah, I, I mean, my uh, my dad's side of the family is from New Orleans, and the and like, so I know that city really well. And reading this, I was like, damn, I didn't realize that I had been missing this whole time. Joan Didion as travel writer, because mm-hmm. she does she she turns those things that we know her um, of being capable of doing about like human psyche and she does it so well with places she just evokes like the weird i would have previously said like intangible things about the south that make it the south and like you read this and you're like oh she gets it in Mm. yeah but also i was curious i'm curious to know how much of this is off the off the page as it were of her notebooks or if it was turned into something and if so when In my album, she says that her notebooks are not supposed to be uh, the last word or 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 necessarily like, I'm going to put this in the piece that I'm writing. They're supposed to um, evoke a place. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be able to bring her back to the moment of when she wrote it. And so she keeps a lot of like, 
things that she overheard or like the feeling of being in a place because that's the thing that's going to get her back to that very moment. Right. That's and so I, if I hadn't read that White Album essay like right before I read this, I don't think I would have seen what she was doing, which is constantly being like, okay, what was it like to be in this motel? What was it like to be? I think one of my favorite um, passages is when she ends up in a um, gas station deli sort of situation and everyone just watches her eat a grilled cheese sandwich yeah. and no one says anything. And then they leave without talking to anybody um, and things like that. Like you just get this great idea of her as how she moves inside the world. Um, and so I felt like I was really getting to know Joan Didion a, a lot in this. Mm. Well, what did you make of her? I mean, she does go into it with a bit of this hypothesis, right? That, you know, California, because South and West, so South is a re- reference to going through, you know, New Orleans, et cetera, the South, right? West is a reference to California, and the book has sort of notebook entries from both places. But I think her contention, right, was that people think of the West as being the future, but in fact, the South is the future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she writes, uh, I had only some dim and un- I had only some dim and unformed sense, a sense which struck me now and then, and which I could not explain coherently, that for some years, the South and particularly the Gulf Coast had been for America what, the pe- what people were still saying California was, and what California seemed to me not to be the future, the secret source of malevolent and benevolent energy, the psychic center. But do you buy that at the end of it? I think what's also interesting, I don't know if you read the foreword or like the New York Times review, but (laughs) they talk about how she was right in the sense that it was the future and now like Trump has been elected. They talk about it in sort of veiled terms. Mm. But what, do you think that that was a correct hypothesis? I mean, I think a lot of reporters go into a situation with a hypothesis and the ultimate story Mm. can often be very different. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder to some extent if that's why, especially with the South, she like never landed on a piece because it is, it's such a hazy thought. Like even now when we can sort of point and be like, look, this old school Southern, old school Southern Democratic actually thought of like racist old white men uh, has been resurgent. And so in that way, like, yeah, that, that is the future that, Instead, we were looking to the West and looking to the bright innovation, and instead it's like, no, it's our past. It's the history that we couldn't quite stamp out. Um, but like that's that's a, it's difficult even now, I think, to fully articulate. Well, I think that um, when you're looking at the interviews that she's got in here or like these profiles, I think that that's where it's, um, that's where I think if as an editor, I think you might get really excited when you're reading like when reading this in manuscript form, like trying to figure out if this fits into a current landscape in that, like, yes, like those conversations that she's having with like, and they're talking about um, uh, all sorts of integration um, issues that they're, that the people are running up against or towards that they, that they want to want more integration. Um, I think it was the guy who owns like a million uh, radio stations. Oh yeah. Who was really interesting that she was talking to him back um, you know, 40, 50 years ago, but it really, that does sound like the future. It sounds like now, mm-hmm. but I don't think that, um, I don't think that the idea that, that there's some sort of dichotomy that like that the California is not the future. Um, it, that speaks more to me of like an old idea of red state, blue state that I don't think that necessarily is like, 
like things can never change in this one or or uh, that's real america versus like some place isn't real america well, like, i feel like it's all part and parcel of the future well what i think what was interesting just to kind of jump off of that is the way that she writes about a place where she's an outsider versus a place that she's an insider so like the last section that takes place in california she knows california really well she's grown up there she feels this connection there right and to me it was way less coherent as a Mm -hmm. thought or as a thesis about a place Mm -hmm. whereas you know even though in times she may have fallen a bit you know I mean, the New York Times review argued that there are places when she was writing about the South where she fell a bit back onto stereotypes. Mm -hmm. But still, the way that she was able to see it and capture... I mean, she writes about this liquid quality of the air, the quality of the light that just seems sucked up by whatever's there and the way that things kind of glow in the light. And if you've ever been in that part of the world, you know, I think, like as you were saying, it's so true. I mean, you can really feel that. And to me, it was interesting is obviously she has written beautifully about California and and you know this better because you've read it recently but um, I don't know to me like reading those two sections together there is there there did seem to be this benefit of coming into something as a stranger Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't I mean this is not all I'm not trying to make it all about you know Bianca but like (laughs) I will say that there's you know I think that that was something I definitely felt as I was writing Cork Dork right is that you come into this world as a bit an outsider and you can see things that are less visible to people who have spent a lot of time there. You see inconsistencies, you see beauty, you see bullshit. Um, And that just jumped off the page of me. Obviously, again, very limited selection of her writing, but still, I wanted to read more about the South, and I didn't really want more of the West. I just think it's really fascinating as a document to see for some glimpse at how she works. Mm-hmm. And I and kind of wish we saw more of that. Like, I, I still don't feel totally satisfied that I have again, a great sense of what, what was this notebook to her? What did she do with it? Was this what she, was this like the journal that she would keep on the road? Like, yeah, like, did she write it five years later? Did she write it five days after yeah. she was there? Um, was this, as she was seeing these things, was it this the third draft of her dealing with these views. But I did find, just as a someone who also writes nonfiction, I thought it was so incredible to see the details that she picks up on, mm-hmm. the overheard snippets, but also in this, and she makes a point of it herself, the way that she's very much superficially involved in the places she's in. Yeah, I mean, this is not like gonzo journalism where she embeds with the beauty queens of the South or the gas station owners or whatever right I mean this is very much she's it is more of that travelogue right of of just sort of I'm here I overheard this while I was pumping my gas what do we make of this which is both so rich but also kind of fraught right right I mean it's the it's the whole bikini thing again of deciding like I'm gonna go swim in these pools in a bikini even though that's not what people around here do like she's like fine with that and 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 fine with or maybe she didn't know until but she keeps doing it (laughs) (laughs) I wish I would have seen the actual notebook like I think that this is one of those that would have been cool like uh, those Kurt Cobain notebooks uh, of like his lyrics and stuff like it would be really neat to actually see like what um 
what yeah, the, or what scan this, of the pages. Yeah, actual or scan of yeah, these. Yeah, I totally agree. And to be able, like at at the end of both, where she's like, "I didn't write the piece." There's something about that that I'm like, "This isn't directly from your notebook." Like, there's some kind of post thing that you're doing. You're you're editing this in post somehow, right? And so to really see, like you're saying, the truly the process would have been really cool. And it's too bad then that um you know Nathaniel Rich didn't kind of provide that in in his foreword too because yeah. I feel like that was a missed opportunity. I started reading that foreword and I had to stop cuz I was just like, man, you're going to try to convince me that like this is the most important piece of Joan Didion's work and I was like, you know that this is a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> um but I still I, think it's great. I, I really enjoyed reading. Oh, I would yeah. like yeah. definitely recommend it. I just I think that it's it does raise a lot of questions that don't get answered. I would say this is I would say that this is more of a book for completists. Um, mm. Or I, I just I I just don't think that this is how you should meet Joan Didion necessarily. I'm glad to know that you that. didn't. Yeah. that you made the conscious choice not to do that. Because I think that's yeah. Should we um. Should we move into things we actually recommend for sure? Some some hard and fast, so many damn books recommendations? Sure. We read some pretty cool books. We recommend you take a look. Yeah. Do you want to start? Okay. Yeah, I can start. <laughs> um, I read in a one big rush um, this awesome uh, begin uh, volume one of Paper Girls, which is written by Brian K. Vaughn, who wrote um, one of my favorite graphic novels ever, Why the Last Man. Um, and so this, mm-hmm. uh, this I wasn't expecting for it. I don't know why I, I took the title and I was like, "Ooh, Paper Girls! What is this going to be about?" It's literally about pa- like newspaper delivery girls. Like, oh, cool. I didn't think that that was what. It, and they're all twelve, um, and they're delivering papers, and suddenly mysterious things start happening. Um, and it it's so realistic the way that it's and uh, it's got a little bit of a Stranger theme, Things vibe. Like I can oh, totally, totally see. Oh, totally. It's like it starts in Halloween '88. Yeah. Think. So I, I definitely think that uh, it, any Stranger Things fans should definitely pick up <laughs> Paper Girls because it's right up your alley. And it's um, it was completely and utterly enjoyable. And I can't wait to read volume two. So, uh, yeah, Paper Girls. Oh, nice. That's my recommendation. Yeah, I'm going to steal that from you. It's <laughs> really good. Uh, do you want to go next, Bianca? Or? Sure. Well, I just finished um, Mary Carr's Lit. Ooh. So I read um, The Liars Club ages ago, and then I recently read Cherry and then followed that up with Lit. Um, and it was a really wrenching book. Um, very, very different from The Liars Club. Um, the Liars Club is really a memoir of her growing up, and it is spans like her childhood and at the very end her adulthood and, and her parents growing older but lit is really about basically kind of post high school forward um and he also kind of about religion finding god alcoholism um and and a book that just made me like tear up on the subway but i just think that she has a really incredible way with words and, and I, she's one of these people who i want to read and read and read until i figure out exactly how she does it mm-hmm. um if you haven't read anything by Mary Carr, I would highly recommend The Liars Club, and then I would kind of read them in that order. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
lit was great it was awesome on a totally different note um so it's been you know i mean getting ready for book launches just is terrifying mm-hmm. um and uh i discovered around that time sarah anderson's comics um she just had a new book called big happy mushy lump um she also <laughs> had one called adulthood is a myth and they're basically one page black and white simple comics and it could be my autobiography they are like all about this awkward protagonist and how you know just it's one of these things that's sort of like a reflection of everyday life she has i think she's based in brooklyn she's a ton of instagram followers she also p- posts her comics on instagram but it's just it's funny it is so, so true and it was just wonderful I tore through it I laughed out loud I would I like texted pictures of the comics to my friends because I just related (laughs) to them so much and you know very 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 different but also great awesome Drew um there was a huge torrential rainstorm a couple days ago Mm -hmm. and I was looking for like something I could read in a single sitting I wanted something creepy and I did something I don't do frequently. I went to Twitter and I was like, I need something short. Uh, and Victor Laval was like, read Fever Dream by... How, how cool is Twitter that like you <laughs> right? can go for a book and then Victor Laval's like, I've got time to recommend a book to a stranger. Um, and I was like, holy shit, that's sitting on my shelf. Uh, and so I read it in a sitting. Wow. That's Samantha so Schweblin's Fever Dream. Right, no H in Samantha. Yeah. Cool. Hmm. Um, it's very weird. It's very creepy. It's... Um, she's an Argentinian author. It's like a little bit of an eco horror situation, but also like David Lynch destabilized narrator dream logic. Um, but it's a woman on a gurney. She's sick. She's talking to this young boy and it is their conversation. And the, the boy is sort of prodding her trying to get her to remember things. And she's talking about basically the last couple of days and everything that has led up to this moment here. And the boy Mm. is like, we have to find the particular moment where, where everything changes. Like the moment you can't go back from, Mm -hmm. um, is this begging to be made into a movie? It sort of sounds in a weird way, like cinematic. I think it's going to be at some point, but I feel like it has to be the right creepy director who is willing to sort of, because there are no, the, it ends and you're like, what? (sighs) That, um, but it's a really smart, and it's just, it's great for like, a, if you need a creepy one sitting read, there you go. Nice. Great. Yeah. Um, wow, that sounds really good. Yeah. That's it for me. That's all I've got. Well, that's, I mean, that's that's a nice space to leave everybody, everything on. Um, Bianca, thank you so much for your book. Yeah. Um, oh, well, thank you Cork for reading Dork. it. And thanks for sharing it with their listeners and for having me into this lo- lovely cozy safe space where i've <laughs> spilled my guts and <laughs> <laughs> well we really loved having you and um these were cool books and yeah. cork dork is out now um go and uh you know assault your senses with some assault <laughs> wrong word <laughs> <laughs> but sure <laughs> with something really great because and read it with a glass of wine in hand my god hell yeah um there's nothing better um oh thanks carly for uh pushing this book into my hands and uh thanks carly merci and also, uh, people who listen to this show, we um, love iTunes reviews. So please go and <laughs> review us on iTunes. It's really easy. For some reason, I really had no idea where you were going with that. I, I should have known. It happens every time. I know. And I'm just begging now. Please. Please.
Have you met any really obsessive people recently? <laughs> uh, we're pretty obsessed with books. Yeah, yeah. We're, we are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the new book I'll write about you guys. I'll call it Dork Dork. dork. <laughs> <laughs> it's too real. Yeah. <laughs> 